Welcome to the Frontline Podcast, brought to you in association with the Atler Group. Atler Group is a collaboration of businesses with a collective history of over 130 years, bringing financial solution to its clients in the world of accountancy, audit, advisory, fiduciary and retirement benefit solutions. Visit atler.im today. On the Frontline Podcast, we chat to leaders in business and successful entrepreneurs to bring you their in-depth and bite-sized opinions that will add value to you and your mind. Liam, thanks for joining me again. Uh, For those that didn't listen, we had a bite-sized episode out recently just providing an overview of Liam, MS Risk, uh, which certainly I'd recommend having a quick listen to. It's only a quick podcast uh, just to get a bit bit of background on, on MS Risk and your business. We thought that we'd take this opportunity maybe to just dig into a bit more of your expertise and what you've seen in, in, in your sort of day-to-day, day-to-day life. So maybe again, just set, set and scene a little bit for our listeners, look back at your background and you, and you served for a period of time. Do you mind just an overview of that background where you can? Sure. Um, I'm a former army officer. I served as a, uh, as a senior officer in the Canadian Armed Forces, also served as a colonel in the British Army. And uh, for the last 25 years, I have been working in the corporate security sector with a particular focus on uh, crisis response uh, working internationally. Did, did you feel those early days of drive to go into the military? Was that something that was just as an early age, something you wanted to do? Yeah, it was, it was for me. I had a brother already serving and um, it just felt natural to you know, join, the, join the military as a, as a young man. And um, uh, I did all the things I was hoping to do. and uh, and. It, the transition into the private security sector seemed uh, natural for me. Right, okay. Interesting. So th- there's so many areas to cover. So let's start with, I'll just throw some words out and I'm sure you can add some meat to the bones. So I know, I know intelligence gathering is something that is part of the role uh, or part of the job that you do. Do you want to expand a little bit on, on how you do that, how it's applied? Yes. Um, so we have our consulting arm, which is the, the, the central piece of the business. And uh, from the very beginning, we always had some uh, analysts uh, giving support to those consultants. You know, we're, we're going to send people into uh, a difficult, uh, a difficult jurisdiction uh, without a lot of support. So we always had analysts providing them daily uh, roundup um, reviews of the media, what was being reported, background information on adversaries we were working against, or or just uh, just news, you know, the day-to-day uh, events, event monitoring. Well, that actually, that team of analysts grew into a uh, client-facing uh, arm all by itself. And so what we found is that, um, uh, well, uh, I've been I've been working with Brunel University for many years now. I guest lecture to the Brunel Center for Intelligence and Security Studies, and we developed an intern program with them. And so every year we recruit masters and PhD students who work as part-time interns with us. They support our our larger analyst team, who in turn are supporting clients directly with uh, regular um, event monitoring periodicals on on topical issues. And of course, still supporting the consultants uh, when they deploy on tasks anywhere in the world. Yeah. Okay. So I guess that that intelligence gathering for a client is about they've obviously got risk management within their business, and whatever areas they feel a risk that and that that they yeah ultimately want reporting in on if it's an area perhaps they're doing business in they want regular reports on if the 
you know, what's going on within that region, for example, I would assume, being the non-intelligence it, it's, gathering it's, person in it's, the room? It's all that and it's more because you might have a business, uh, you might be part of a business in, on an acquisition trail. You're moving into, uh, so, so you've got the due diligence process and you're going to have your financial due diligence and your environmental due diligence and perhaps geological due diligence if it's in the natural resources space. And what companies are increasingly doing, something I call security due diligence. So, uh, you know, it's, you, you need to have the information to take an informed decision on that business you're buying or um, the environment that that business is operating in. If you're moving into a new country that you're not familiar with, you don't want to find out that, uh, that you built a, a facility next to a, an area that's uh, a no-go area for the police or that has a chronic crime problem or, or um, in a more extreme sense, a conflict or, or other things bubbling over. And so, um, so our analysts do a number of things. One of the, thing, one of the uh, uh, typical reports they'll generate is called a PESA report. And this is uh, reviewing factors that cover political, economic, social, technical, legal, and environmental conditions um, against the backdrop of, of whatever the organization is going to be doing. So um, that PESA report, if nothing else, gr grounds the reader into the, uh, into the situation that they're walking into. And, and so if you are going to go and uh, develop a mine in Sudan, you need to know that there was a coup yesterday and uh, the prime minister's whereabouts are, are uncertain. Um, if you are going into another part of the world, then you need to know, um, you know is, is um, government expropriation uh, a concern? And, and you know we have energy clients who use us regularly, and that's one of the key things that their insurers want to know about. Not just the security hazards to the asset and to the people, but um, but how reliable is that jurisdiction, and is there a track record uh, of government um, uh, nationalization and so on? So we're, those are all f uh, factors that get taken into account. So you touched on insurance there, and you've you've messed up my my notes because now I have to jump ahead but I want to dig into the insurance if that's okay so we were chatting off air just about how the uh, ins the insurance angle came in as opposed to the sector do you want to just expand to that on our listeners because I thought it was quite an interesting interesting how it really ha came out from the original well sort of touch point of this kidnap many many years ago yeah so I think you're, you're talking about special risks insurance yep. uh, which is a particular product that uh, we, we uh, respond to a number of underwriters for um, you know it's special risks insurance will cover five perils typically uh, and and this is fairly standard across the underwriters that that you might uh, you might go to they'll they'll all have similar wordings uh, uh, the, the perils will be kidnapping hijacking extortion in the widest sense of that 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 word uh, as well illegal detention and uh, malicious product tamper and the, those five perils are fairly normal features across most special risk insurance, and um, it's a very uh, it's a very uh, bespoke and intimate product. In that, for, first of all, if, if a company or a family take out this insurance, they can't advertise they have it because it would invite uh, an incident. Uh, it, it's actually going to invite uh, targeting by by criminals or or, or others, and so. Um, so quite often companies carry it and of course the staff can't know they've got it. So, the, so um, there's limitations on, on, on training and prevention and so on. But at the corporate level, there should be a corporate crisis management team and 
and normally these these products carry a training dimension, a prevention training dimension, which companies really are encouraged to, to, to take uh, when it's offered. And um, would that and, typically then try and help reduce a premium again on coming from a basic angle? Um, well, or would they insist say, I, I, look, your premium is X for the, for this, but we'd expect you to implement the, these. Uh, risk reduction training type of arrangement. I mean, there's some good examples here that are, that are live right now. So in, in the maritime space, there never used to be hijack insurance. And what happened was about the year 2010, a number of insurance companies that had traditional kidnap focus, they began to modify uh, for the marine environment their, their, their normal policies and um, and marine brokers began to uh, because of Somali piracy they began to learn about this and um, this product so they could support their their clients well the upshot of it now is that there was tremendous effort 10 years ago to um, to help industry the maritime industry improve its its position so for example um, a number of players came together to create the best management practice and this was a manual to say how ship owners could best protect their ships when they're on the high seas, when they were in ports, and also it included guidance on how to engage private security because anyone could say they're an expert and there was no central registry of approved maritime security companies. So the result now is that you'll find that marine underwriters today, to this very day, they will stipulate, they expect best management practice five or BMP five to be carried out. And if that happens, then, then there'll be modifications to terms and so on. Um, and, or there'll be, or there'll be um, uh, if there, there'll be more exclusions, for example, if companies can't evidence they have good, a good healthy attitude to risk management and security management. Okay. So yourself or NMS risk, globally that the 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 offerings you have is that a, a big industry globally or is this just a number of boutique players such as yourself or bespoke players it's a small number and you know there are thousands of people who say they do this but the reality is that there's a small number of companies you know 10 to 12 companies who are credible um the you know they they the credibility comes from from being retained by insurance syndicates that are offering this product and and the response component is is you know arguably the most important part because the insurance is there to reimburse a policyholder should they have a claim that means they've had a kidnapping or an extortion or um, a hijacking or similar um, it's the response which is going to help that that victim that victim organization navigate their way through it so really um, one could argue that when people are buying companies are buying this special risk insurance they're re they're buying a policy from an underwriter but they're really buying the response that comes with that um, you know and this this really came into being as a product in the 1970s you know you you mentioned earlier the um, the, the kidnapping in the night in 19 well, 89 years ago was that 1932 a little baby called Charles Lindbergh Jr. was kidnapped and he was the 20-month-old son of the aviator Charles Lindbergh. Now, Charles Lindbergh and his wife were distraught and they paid a ransom and back in those days, the FBI didn't exist yet. The Americans had the Bureau of Investigation and they noted that the ransom was paid and that the baby wasn't released and in fact, his corpse was found about two months later in the woods behind the house. Well. That was an early, there was an early attempt at that time in the 1930s to create a special 
kidnap insurance product. It didn't happen. But by if you fast forward 40 years later into the 1970s, you had a lot of flux in the world. You'd, we'd had the Munich Olympics in 1972 with the Israeli team being kidnapped and ultimately murdered in a, in a, a rescue attempt. Um, you had... Um, you had a variety of terrorist groups hijacking planes. That was that was quite in vogue in the 1970s. Um, you had um, a number of high-profile industrialist kidnappings. So you had the, the Freddie Heineken kidnap case. You had the Jennifer uh, Guinness uh, kidnapping. You had uh, Don Tidy, the supermarket uh, CEO in Ireland, was kidnapped. There was a failed attempt on the supermarket mogul Ben Dunn. So you had through the 70s all this activity happening into the early 80s, and and in the 70s, a bunch of insurance and a number of insurance parties got together and they conceived a product built around uh, the kidnap risk. And I think they said, uh, well, if if we could reimburse a ransom uh, for an injured for a victim family or party, this would uh, be attractive. Well, in the absence of uh, prevention, the, the the premium would have to be as much as the ransom, you know, but but the fact was they, they came up with this model that said, let's have a, uh, a prevention ethos. Let's help families and companies manage their risk to reduce it happening in the first place, which makes them a better risk as well. Um, they said, if it happens, let's have advisors that will help the family or the company manage uh, better through it. So there's a better outcome. Um, and, and, you know, that's, that's how this industry was really born. And today you fast forward another 40 years and you've got, you know, 10 or 12 companies operating, supporting 20 to 22 syndicates that seriously offer product around this. Others come and go, but, but there are about 20 plus syndicates at Lloyd's um, who offer this. And um, as I say, they cover those five standard perils, kidnap, extortion, hijack, illegal detention, and malicious product tamper. And um, increasingly, we see a, a sixth peril as an extension, which is around evacuation. Okay. Well, we'll come back to ev evacuation, surely, just to go back to illegal detention. Explain that to the layman, such as myself. Sure. I mean, people will say there's a kidnapping and there's illegal detention. Surely they're the same thing. Well, they're not quite. Illegal detention is, de is designed around uh, um, arrest uh, or detention by the state. And, uh, and then people quickly say, well, if I'm on a holiday overseas and I have a problem with, with the local police, surely I can just trigger this insurance policy. It would help me. Well, it depends on the circum circumstances, you know. So, for example, if um, the rule of thumb is that if you've been arrested for a crime while you're traveling uh, and that is also a crime in your home country, then this insurance policy won't help you. So... You know, the example I use is if having a, a kilo of cocaine is against the law while we're sitting here in Douglas in the Isle of Man, then getting arrested in a Latin American country on a business trip for having a kilo of cocaine, um, well, yeah. you know, oh. you, you can't call the hotline. It's not going <laughs> to not going to help you. Oh, interesting. So, so you touched on there about crisis response. And I guess ultimately a lot of the time when that phone call comes, you, you're going into the situation. It's its very worst moment. Uh, family members, I guess, or corporates with key employees that are uh, at their worst moment and then your, your ultimate job then is to crisis manage that but that must be a uh, challenging I would say to say the least uh, but I, I guess as you see then that journey of trying to help them resolve that 
to a good ending ultimately uh, there must be some job satisfaction in there as well well there is now no two jobs are the no two cases are the same and um, but you know there are some there are some principles which which uh, follow through through all the cases you know when we we arrive to the scene of a with a family or a company that's in this this distress um, while we're in transit, a colleague will be giving them hand-holding advice over the phone so that they can, they can field any further communications from the adversary while we're getting to them. We go to where the phone's going to ring. So we go to where the family is. If, they're going to, if, if the, the victim's spouse is going to be called, then we need to be with the victim's spouse. If the victim's boardroom is going to be called, we need to be in that boardroom. So we, we initially go to where the phone will ring. We... Uh, you know, you're quite right. We have really a matter of minutes to uh, demonstrate to the people we're meeting for the very first time in many cases that, uh, that we have a solution, uh, a way forward for them to follow. And, um, and so we'll, we'll take them through, um, well, first we'll, we'll, we'll assess the information that's available. Um, and then we'll, we'll constantly be evaluating and reevaluating who we think uh, we're working against, um, what what uh, the conditions are, how they how they might change, and so on, and um, we'll help the, the client organization form a crisis management team with with key figures there, with with key roles and responsibilities, and we coach them and we advise them through this. And you know, I, I sit down at the beginning of every case with um, with, with with those individuals, and I say. Uh, I don't know when this is going to end, but I can tell you this will come to an end. Every case comes to an end. And, and in that moment, they will uh, often um, describe that they, they can't see a way forward and it's very traumatic for them. But whether it's a matter of days or in some cases months or even longer, at the, there is always an end. And, um, and you know, when at, the, at that end, they will always go back to that first conversation when they met me coming off the plane or what have you and, and say, you know, you said this would have an end and I didn't believe it, but we, you have taken us through this. You've advised us a, a way forward and um, we've come to, we've resolved the, the problem. Yeah, I'm sure. Uh, thankfully, obviously never being in that situation that you couldn't see the wood for the trees, I'm sure, if you're at, at the, the, the sticky end of that situation. So again, we sit here in the Isle of Man you know, kind of, kind of a bubble in many ways. Uh, but the reality is, kid, let's just use kidnapping as an example. It's it's a it's a problem around the globe. Uh, I think again, off air, we were talking about red zones, where it's more more prevalent. Mexico, I would guess, places like that. So, if you got stats, sort of appreciate it. it might not be able to reel them off the top of your head of the type of numbers of thing you know that go on around globally. But maybe what is reported, and maybe. More importantly, from your own experience, if those numbers are right, in fact, there are no official statistics. I don't think there's any um, any data set that will can tell you confidently how many kidnappings occur in the world uh, every year. You know, different underwriters will, in their in their marketing information, they'll say there are fifteen thousand a year, or there are twenty thousand a year, or ten thousand a year, or whatever. But um, you know. I remember the other year we did analysis um, on, on Mexico and the Mexican government had recorded, I think, 1,608 kidnappings that year. But for many of us who've worked there extensively, we felt that was about 2% of the true number. Wow. And so that would mean that there's over 80,000 kidnappings a year in Mexico. And, and the vast majority go unreported. You know, they don't make the media. It's not high profile celebrities. It's not... Um, 
large Western businesses with a profile. It, quite often, it's economic migrants. It's the middle classes. Um, it, it's contained in different parts of the country. You know, we've had um, we've had quite a lot of experience working across the northern frontier of Mexico along the American border. And uh, in a, without going into specifics, it, these were not wealthy people being extorted or being or having kidnap uh, applied to them. But um, but you know, it doesn't matter if you're wealthy or not. If if the extortionist is going to get as much as they think you're worth, then you know that's they're squeezing a sponge, and they, they won't stop squeezing till they think they've got yeah. as much as they can. I get, I guess again, I, I think about a kidnap situation, and again, perhaps just press and, and the belief of someone's been kidnapped want two million pound but i guess again in in some of those areas if they're getting i don't know a couple of thousand pound that's that's just you know just seems maybe i don't know if that's the case but just seems an amazingly small amount of money for a kidnap but again if that's that's the way they extort money i guess that's the, you know the around the world there's uh there are different rhythms to this crime and uh and, and you know no one likes to talk about a going rate but, but de facto, there is a going rate in certain jurisdictions oh, okay. because if the crime is that entrenched, it's, it's, it's that common. Um, and so you have low-level gangsters who all they do is extort money and, and carry out low-level kidnappings. And, mm. and it is small sums in, in, in many cases because that's all they're looking for. Small sums to you and me. Yeah. There's yeah. still big sums yeah. to, to the, the victim families that are, that are trying to, uh, to raise it. And, you know, where you... If you had a heat map of the world where you had green areas, it means that the crime doesn't happen a lot. And when it does happen, the authorities are pretty tuned in and energetic about dealing with it. Um, the redder the zone, you know, the, the, the more the crime happens. But also it means that the authorities are either overwhelmed uh, or, or they're, they're not competent. Um, they're not fully competent and able to, uh, to arrest the problem and, and get ahead of it. Yeah, okay, interesting. So that the kidnapping then, I assume... Part of that, obviously, it's about often funding or getting funds. But then I assume it also bleeds into human trafficking, slavery, situations like that. As sad as that, unbelievable in the modern world that goes on. Actually, but. it is. And, you know, we haven't talked about terrorism yet, but let's just stay on, on to... Uh onto criminal kidnapping and, and human trafficking and so on. So, you know, it's it's been well documented that across West Africa right now, there are, there are lots of young men and women who are looking for a better life. And so their families will pay traffickers uh, on the promise that their daughter is going to be an au pair in Rome or their son is going to be uh, trying out for a junior team in, in a football club in, in the UK. They pay the trafficker money to take their son or daughter and, and to uh, traffic them to Rome or to the UK or wherever. The reality is that they never get there. They, they end up uh, in, a, in a slave transit camp in Libya where there are actual slave auctions and people can be dragged off to be forced labor somewhere. Or that young girl who is promised to be an au pair in Rome is told, no, no, actually you have to work in a, in a, for an escort agency or work in a massage parlor and pay off the debt that, that you didn't know you've incurred. So these kind of human tragedies, they're, they're, they're very common, sadly. And um, you know, the, the Sahel trafficking routes are getting more and more attention now. But um, it's, um, they happen in other parts of the world as well. So when you're chatting there, I, I often go back to this this thought process when I hear stories like that of my mother who was a nurse, she dealt in a hospice, she had to, you know, ultimately deal with uh, 
not nice circumstances, people passing away, you know, or dying, and families being around them. So in your job, how do you, you know, personally, you obviously see situations where we talk about human slavery and I sit here and just think, I couldn't even imagine hearing it, let alone maybe being confronted with it. How do you, on a personal level, do you have to depart commental wise, if you know what I mean? You know, um, it's a it's a it's a good question. The so first of all, we have more successes than failures, and you know the I think you'll find that Western law enforcement will accept these figures. About ninety eight percent of negotiated um, settlements result in the safe release of the captives. So so and and in, in our company's case, is even more than ninety eight percent of the cases we've done, everyone's come home safely. And there is a tremendous sense of satisfaction when you have, um, you've advised on a case where someone or some group of people have had their liberty taken away from them, they're being threatened with violence, their families are and their employers are under tremendous strain and pressure, and you've helped them navigate that and get to a good result. Um, and you know the other thing is that uh, you know, rescues don't go so well. You know, I'm not talking about in this jurisdiction, you know, within the law enforcement have great um, firearms teams, great hostage rescue teams in their own jurisdictions. The, the problem we have with the crime that we're talking about here is that when um, when there's a kidnapping or a hostage taking of some sort in our own jurisdiction, then there is there is a direct action rescue opportunity possibly. Or there's the chance to convince the uh, the villain to give up, convince that they, you know, they're not going to get away with it. The problem what we have with this crime that we're talking about is that you're not going to convince a Somali pirate to give up. And you're not going to get a rescue in, in the vast majority of cases because the, the logistics are very difficult. And so when there have been international military rescues, um, you know, they have, a, they have a similar failure rate. They have about a 98% failure rate. There are great examples of, of great gallantry and, and, and they're, they're all full of gallantry and courage and, and they're bold, and, and, but only in a small number do we see hostages rescued safely. Mm -hmm. so, so knowing that the negotiation process uh, has, has that, um, that those odds, and especially when it's done correctly, yeah, yeah. That, that, uh, that's fulfilling. When we have um, when we have bad moments, and, and there have been bad moments, um, I guess we uh, we temper that with, uh, with 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 the good outcomes. Yeah, absolutely. That, you know, yeah, no, you know, um, yeah. That's what I'll yeah. say for that. So we chatting just we talked about global kidnapping, and you you mentioned terrorism, and you mentioned about coming back to that. Did you have something particularly around that area? Well, of course, with terrorism, you've got uh, there's there's a different there's a different purpose behind it. You know, if if we're a couple of gangsters and we go kidnap someone, it's for money, um, and that might be small. On your gang now, you know. <laughs> but but if but if we're doing it for a different purpose, that that attaches uh, a whole other set of um, uh, whole set of boundaries, another another set of boundaries to it. So, um, so what would that be when you talk about a different set of boundaries in what context? Well, from a few different angles. So from the from the the kidnappers' perspective. They might not be kidnapping for ransom. They might be kidnapping for a political purpose, which could be ultimately to murder the hostage and put it on the internet. And we've got plenty of ample evidence of that, you know, from from time in Syria and Iraq and, and a few other places. So it's not about a ransom. It's about uh, 
it's about a political demand or a concession and if it's not realized then then it's a tragic outcome or it can be so um so that is a different set of stakes um and just because they say they're from a terrorist group that doesn't mean they are because sometimes these groups will, will do this and they'll use a banner name to try to be the boogeyman and scare the family or scare the employer into uh, in, into more submission um, so just because they say there's something mm. doesn't mean they are but uh, but they could be and, and I the, guess the reason sorry, got, is different I was gonna say to go back earlier to that, that kind of intelligence gathering part of that I guess as your role is to suss out are they who they say they are, are they representing that banner they're under? I guess, again, that's all part of what you're doing as well as working with the, the victim to get to the, the stage you need to get to. Indeed, and, and you never always have a categoric uh, no, of course. confidence. Yeah. But but yeah, you're, you're trying to assess um, are they who they say they are? Could they be somebody else? Uh, all that comes into it. The other thing with on the financing side is that, uh, in fact, this is controversial to some degree, there's great, uh, in, in Africa right now, West Africa in particular, there's uh, a great deal of um, uh, Western government concern over, rightfully so, over Western hostages who've been taken uh, over the years. And then currently there, there are a small number being held in Mali. They've been kidnapped in Burkina Faso, they've been kidnapped in Niger, they've been kidnapped in Mali. They all seem to end up in Mali where there's a war. And, um, and about once a year or once every couple of years, there's there's the release of one or two expat, expatriate hostages. And undoubtedly, there was some uh, ransom associated with it. Yeah. The, um, the One of the things here is that then government gets very concerned about terrorist finance from the ransom payment. Mm -hmm. But there are actually actual uh, regular uh, criminal activities that the very terrorists who are Ransom, you know, doing a ransom of one or two hostages occasionally, they're making, um, you know, d many times over the same value, and they're doing it through smuggling and the illegal mining and trafficking, and and so all these other um, crimes, which are largely unseen, are worth much more to the. And I'm not trying to minimize the kidnap issue, but but it, the, there is a much wider uh, source of revenue generation for organized crime in a hybrid terrorist situation than there is the basic kidnapping. Mm -hmm. um, okay, interesting. So, so another subject to, to touch on was uh, at the moment in the, in the, in the news recently is uh, Sudan and the ch changes that are going on there. I guess one of the common, uh, common situations, if we call them common, that you find is evacuating people. So whether that's there's a civil war just breaking out, whether there's... Uh, you know, I guess with Afghanistan, uh, no, sorry, Iraq recently, and the the, put the military pulling out, and there's obviously everyone's rushing to the airport to get out. I assume again, that's an area you, you work in the evacuation. No, definitely, and you know, um, the, there's a, there are a number of factors that come into play here. So ideally, if you're in a uh, a country that is having demonstrating or displaying stability issues, you shouldn't wait until there is that moment of we need to get out of here if we actually have a tension indicator that our clients use and it's really four levels and level four is everything's normal and green and level one is uh critical and you shouldn't have any staff in that country and then you can imagine three and two are, are graduated um levels but that we can plot where you are because it's not just about saying what you should do it's also giving the indicators as to what's happening so when you have a little bit of um 
you know, increase in, in, in criminal activity like kidnapping or bombings or assassinations, that's, that's going to tell you that, okay, we're, we're, things aren't normal. When you see um, uh, religious or ethnic uh, violence uh, flaring up, when you see the inability for uh, law and order to carry on, these are all indicators which, which should be triggering commensurate activity, such as thin out non-dependent staff, thin out dependent uh, personnel, spouses and children. Um, um, look at where everyone's living and consider moving them to more centralized uh, areas that are easier to, to safeguard and control. Having go bags, so, or, 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 or um, um, well, well, travel bags. Having, having a bag, everyone prepares with 24 to 48 hours of clothing, key documents with them, uh, some currency. If they have meds, then the meds are there. If there are children in the mix, then you have, you have nappies and formula and all these things positioned so that on very short notice, everyone can pick up their go bag and go to the airport and get on a scheduled air flight or get in a convoy of buses or, or uh, Land Rovers and drive somewhere that's safer. So um, these these measures have to be in place and, and the tension indicator guides a company to do that. Yeah, so I guess that's around your risk management model then of the plan review do. Yes, absolutely. So that whole plan do review cycle is uh, continue. It's a cycle of continuous improvement, um, and uh, it, it's the doctrine that underpins everything that we do. There's a very busy slide which I won't try to describe for your your, your listeners, but uh, but there is a, a a systematic process for for managing the enterprise security model. Now, one of the things I, I should you know like to say is that in Hollywood. When we when we see a really good film and there's an evacuation or what have you, the uh, uh, every the, the the evacuees are waiting for the U.S. Marines to come choppering in to get them out. The reality is this: companies have a duty of care to their people um, and and to their shareholders, which includes having a good risk mitigation plan. That means companies need to take they need to self-secure and take responsibility for their own security and not wait until everything's gone gone wrong and then phone up their embassy and say, get us out. I can tell you the embassies will be struggling to look after their own embassy workers um, and they'll be struggling to, to uh, make a lot of things happen well. And it's it behooves companies to, to take this responsibility and, and, and self-secure. You know, an extrapolation of that you, you get, um, especially in natural resources, you get companies operating and then you get a myriad of contractors working under that umbrella. So you might have a, a major operator who owns the concession and then you'll get a myriad of dozens or even hundreds of contracting companies. Before the Inaminas gas plant attack some years ago where we had 847 hostages taken and a number were killed, this was in Algeria, before that, it was normal. It was the convention was that contractors didn't actually look at the fine print of their contract with their with their uh, client and client and say, well, what's actually demarcated in terms of security of personnel, security of assets, and crisis response. But the Inaminas gas plant threw up a, a number of problems, and Statoil have to be really congratulated because they did they did a very detailed forensic analysis afterwards. Um, and they published their report in full for the world to see. And a number of learnings came out of it. The result today is that uh, in the energy sector in particular, there's much better preparation by all parties. So, so a drilling company will know if it's under the umbrella of security reliably of their end client or if they need to 
create their own umbrella of security. Um, and you know, in the mining sector, it's not as well organized as the energy sector, although there are, there are great examples of companies you know, doing this. And so we just finished a, a task in Cote d'Ivoire for a drilling company. And this drilling company is working for a mining project, but they weren't comfortable that the mining project has the security where it has to be, or that that drilling company is being properly considered. And so um, they had us do first independent analysis of the environment that their people would be working in. And then they had us assist with some extra training and we invited the end client to participate as well. So there was, you know, co continuity and cohesion. And that actually was, uh, that was a healthy approach and a responsible approach to security for, for those staff. Very interesting. I think ultimately we just scratched the surface here. I could probably sit for hours and dig into a lot more of, of really what you do day to day. I imagine it's pretty fascinating and every day is new, a new challenge. I guess if people are listening, they want to reach out to you, I guess website's a good start point. Find you on LinkedIn. That'd be the start points. So I actually, yeah, I don't have a lot of social media, to be honest. Um, you know, uh, I'm not, yeah. So what I would say is um, they can reach me uh, they can reach our company through yeah. msrisk.com yep. uh, or our email is info at msrisk.com and uh, we're always help, happy to uh, field inquiries and uh, and help uh, people and companies through, uh, through 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 these situations. Great. Well, thanks for coming in. I hopefully give our listeners a, a really fascinating insight. Obviously, uh, the, the, the information and the knowledge you can see is there, so I'm sure you can add value for people. So again, thanks for joining us today. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening, everyone.